This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot. I assume Tom. This morning, I'm having a great time talking to a couple of comic book creators as the Kickstarter just went live yesterday, and we are talking about the women in the woods and other North American stories. Alina P. and Kel McDonald, how are you today? Doing all right. Yeah, doing great. Congratulations on getting this book together. Uh, you know, we don't hear that. You know, we've kind of forgotten about American folklore and folk tales. Um, you know, we had like Johnny Appleseed and we learned about that up until like the second grade and then um, Paul Bunyan and stuff like that. But that all like died out for us rather quickly. Uh, what was it about these stories that you wanted to bring forward and create this 100 page comic? Um, I mean, so the it's part of a series. It's actually the fifth volume of a series where each volume is supposed to just focus on a different continent. So um, myself and uh, my co-organizer, Kate Ashman, who couldn't make it uh, due to time zone difficulty, um, we um, were, since we knew we were going to do North America, um, we wanted to focus on more um, indigenous nations, uh, folklore, uh, which is why we reached out to Alina to help us um, get a bunch of artists together. Because um, you mentioned kind of the idea for the series as a whole is to shine a light on folklore that people might not be familiar with. And you mentioning like Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan, like most kids hear those in the U.S. at least. So uh, focusing on specifically Native uh, folklore was kind of the um, point to just make sure that was the focus rather than something that people would probably be more familiar with. And Alina, are you first nation yourself or? Yeah. Yeah. I am uh, Nahia. I am a uh, Cree from Saskatchewan and I was actually trained as a storyteller growing up. Uh, my mom uh, is a storyteller. And so she took me along uh, whenever she was out telling stories, usually at like beaver camps out in the woods, that kind of things. Um, she would go to and talk to different school groups and tell stories. So I've been seeped in like, traditional legends basically since i was a kid very nice yeah uh, i'm an ethnic assyrian so we are the indigenous oh, cool. population of uh of, of uh, iraq and, and northwestern iran and you know similar to you we don't get much recognition in uh in the homeland so yeah yeah um so you you've gone through the other continents and, and visited across the world and then we get to north america um Alina, this is your, your existence. You, you know, you were here before everybody else was. Um, is there a moment where you sit there and you're like, these stories need to be told and there are certain ones that have to be excluded that doesn't necessarily fit how it's going to flow that I mean, made yeah. it more difficult for you? Uh, I mean, basically daily I sit here and be like, oh yeah, nobody else knows these stories. Cause like I mentioned, I've been hearing, like I, I know all the different creation myths, um, from a lot of different people across the prairies, but I've been reaching out and uh, learning more stories from across North America. And I'm always interested to see how they're different and how they're the same. Um, I love the Navajo creation myth where we uh, people, the first people there climbed out of the earth uh, through a hole. Um, that's really, really cool. I love that myth. I love a lot of the Inuit myths um, up North uh, Sedna, the sea, um, sea goddess is one of my favorite stories from there. But uh, I always, like, I know the stories from Saskatchewan so well that I sort of forget that other people don't know them. 
and you know, for you mentioned Inuit for people that still haven't been caught up to speed. Uh, they used to be called Eskimos. And so we're just going with the flow and what's being the more appropriate term these days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't want anybody to get offended or go, what's that? And then they're like, oh, why aren't they just calling them Eskimos? Because they don't want to be called Eskimos anymore. It's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kel, you're the co-creator of the series and uh, one of the editors. Uh, what was the catalyst for you to want to tell these stories yourself? Uh, so um, back in 2011, um, I um, adapted a French werewolf folktale because I'm a big werewolf fan. Um, and, uh, I did it as like a mini comic and a lot of other comic creators I knew were like, oh, I always wanted to adapt this and folk tale or fairy tale that people don't really know about, but never really had the time or the excuse. So the first volume I put together was kind of to get people to do like what was their personal, not well-known stories. And then like, since those were all European, I was like, well, let's do like, Africa and then Asia and then uh Oceania and then this next this current one is the North America one so it kind of like I saw that regardless of where the folklore was coming from like different people there's always stuff that like didn't stand get as much spotlight because mostly because Disney didn't try to adapt it but um yeah uh yeah yeah so (laughs) Uh, so it's just stuff like that, like, um, and then a fun thing about like these folk tales is sometimes there's a, a message that like part of why they didn't stick around is because there's a message, um, that fell out of like context as a society developed. So the French folk tale I mentioned, um, a lady cheats on her husband who's a werewolf and he bites her nose off. And that seems an odd, like a kind of random from a modern perspective, but at the time it was written, that was the official punishment for adultery. Um, and so it's just kind of like being able to adapt them and then either preserve that what might seem odd, um, because of the time and place it was made or, um, to adapt it to something more modern. Um, I just think like that's just, it was interesting and something I've always liked folklore and stuff. I dig it. You said you were a big werewolf fan. Have you ever heard the European metal band Power Wolf? Uh, I have not because okay. I don't really branch out to music a whole lot. Okay. Because, because they do a lot of like in the, in their music incorporates a lot of like light, lycanthrope. Is that, or lycanthrope? Nice. I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, in their music, like, you could tell they all were raised in Catholic school. They all went to conservatory and then they all like started doing this horror metal genre where they mix like their Catholic upbringing with like these Romanian folk tales. Uh, how many times do they reference St. Christopher? Uh, I don't remember how many times they remember they mentioned St. Christopher, but they talk about a lot of different saints. They talk about all sorts of things that go along with like crusades and and mixing of uh, demonology and, and yep. uh, you know, c- Christianity itself. So if you ever want to do a werewolf, yeah. you know, album or at least listen to one, Brad. Power Wolf's there for you. <laughs> I like metal. I like werewolves. <laughs> yeah. There you go. See? So now we're giving Power Wolf a free plug. So. <laughs> and, and again, with real, real quick before we move on. It does get annoying that when European bands sing in perfect English and then when they speak, they have really heavy accents. I'm like, 
either sing in the accent or <laughs> learn how to talk American. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but the, the stories you have in here, uh, as it was told to me, a creation tale that shows, uh, you know, that the world needs good and bad to exist, which is written and illustrated by Elijah Forbes, uh, transgender Ottawa. Did I pronounce that correctly? Um, O-G-A-W-A. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, this is the, uh, uh, Elijah's creation story from Elijah's ancestry, correct? Yes. Okay. What, was it at, that important to get people from those specific first nations to tell their stories? Yeah. Oh, uh, hugely. Yeah. Everyone we reached out to, um, there were a few people who, um, didn't have, um, I, think official citizenship from their nation and so they partner we tried to partner them up with someone who did um so uh. yeah um native ancestry gets a lot uh muddled because of a lot of the assimilation processes that were uh done so i know here in canada we had the 60s scoop where a lot of children were taken away from their families and raised um usually by white families they were raised non-indigenous uh so there is it's really kind of a contentious issue what, who is and isn't indigenous. So we left it open for our um, creators to self-identify with the nations that were, they were from. Uh, and then one of the things that was really important in this one is that traditionally storyteller or stories don't belong to any one person. They belong to the nation that they're from. Um, they were gifted to those people. So what we did is we asked our writers to do whatever protocol was appropriate for their nation. Uh, and go and talk to their elders or other people who have those stories and ask for permission to retell them here in the comics anthology. Um, and so that protocol varies from nation to nation. And so that's why we left it to them. They would know their people the best. Yeah, because sometimes some people don't know their own history and their own ancestry. So sometimes someone from a neighboring nation or culture that's quite similar to theirs has a similar story. And, you know, I didn't know if that was like acceptable for the anthology series or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a couple people who, uh, were reconnecting with their history, um, and, uh, were sort of asking like, well, I don't know who to talk to, but I am, you know, Métis or, um, trying to remember some of the other people who we had, uh, but I, I was able to sort of get them in touch with people that they could ask, uh, just by, you know, uh, friendship centers, cultural centers, that kind of stuff are often good resources for that. You you mentioned that a lot of the children were taken away and raised with uh, more of a British upbringing than than an Indigenous upbringing, and the phrase that was used uh, throughout the at least 17th and 18th century, which needs to be reiterated, was to save the man and kill the savage. And mm-hmm. it seems even across the world, whether we're in Asia and the Middle East, or, you know, the, the Far East or even in Africa, there's still aspects of that, even if it might not be colonialization from Europeans, people within that region that still have that mindset. And it, it makes mention that it's something we don't want to forget because it's happened over here. And the minute you forget it, it can happen again. Um, totally. Well, that's why I think it's so important to have these stories in an anthology like this. Cause like, if there's kids out there who want to reconnect with their, with their history, but don't know how, this is a really good accessible way to do that. They can read these stories and be like, oh, that's from the nation that I'm from. Cool. I now know one of the stories of my people. Maybe I can go find others. And what did you two learn about yourselves in creating this story? And what did you learn about creation stories that were either extremely similar to your own? 
or so far different. They're like, wow, I never even had that perspective from X nation. I mean, this one put me in touch with a lot of uh, stories that I was unfamiliar with. And I've, I've done a fair amount of research, but like, there's just such a wealth of indigenous stories. So for example, I hadn't, hadn't heard of the woman in the woods before. Uh, and so when that story uh, was turned in, I was like, I haven't heard this one. And I love it. This is great. Um, there was a couple that I'd heard different versions of. Uh, White Horse Plains is uh, based on a, an area in Canada that I've actually been to and visited. But uh, the version of the story that came in was slightly different than the one I heard. And I was like, oh, I like this. Uh, I like that there's a little bit different information here. And now that the Kickstarter is live and we're able to talk about it because it took a little while to uh, to get things mm-hmm. underway. And we want to make sure that uh, people know what, what to look for and be a part of. Um, what would you tell non-ethnic readers that are going to want to be interested in these stories? Because I've heard the phrase cultural appropriation, which I'm really not a fan of. Because I'm more of the idea of cultural appreciation. And so, because if appropriation was the whole thing, then fusion food would be terrible and no one would ever go to any of those restaurants. <laughs> but uh, how would someone that isn't of, you know, this any of these specific ethnic backgrounds or from various ethnic backgrounds across the other four continents sit there and go, wow, I'm really impressed by this. Like, what would they learn from, from the new... Uh, so the point of the whole series in general is supposed to be cultural appreciation. Uh, that I like that term because it's sort of like uh, since they're all aimed at kids, it's kind of supposed to be an uh, educational like starting point. And so you have a kid who maybe picks up Asia because they like anime. That's from selling at cons. That's that's one of the better sellers. Um, and but then like they come back and then they get the Africa folklore one and they get the um, Oceania folklore one. Um, and it's it's so it's all of them can be an entry point based on what the kid is interested in, and then they can just continue to read the whole series and get a little bit of an idea of all these different places. So then they hopefully like that fosters a love and respect of folklore from around the world. And they can then start to dig deeper and find their own, um, do their own research and pick up more and more stuff. And this goes without having to give a full geography lesson. Like I had to explain to somebody the other day that the Middle East is in Asia and they couldn't wrap their head around it. And I was like, have you ever seen a map or a globe? This is a now, huge continent. One yeah. of the conversations that we have um, each time we're starting is, so what counts as this continent? So there are a couple of Middle Eastern stories in the Asia one. Um, uh, we Because we, we made sure that people understood it was the full gamut of Asia, not just um, China and Japan, which are what get adapted the most to Western audiences. Right. And for people that don't know, Iraq is the most winningest country in the Asian Cup. So (laughs) there's the soccer tie in to all of this, just full internationalism. Um, Well, and then jumping back to uh, cultural appropriation for a second, if I can. um, I know that in the past, a lot of um, First Nations anthologies of stories were often produced not by indigenous people and not really for indigenous people. Like it was more of a, we spoke to somebody and we've taken their stories now and are republishing them for our own goals. Um, in this, uh, anthology, we're actually working with all, like all First Nations artists and writers, um, presenting their own voices and their own takes on these stories and they're getting paid for this. Um, so that's, 
part of what makes it not like this is cultural appreciation. We want people to hear these stories. We want people to be, get familiar with First Nations culture. Right. And um, so there shouldn't be any worry about being like, oh, I'm not native, so I can't read this anthology. No, we're making it for you. Come get familiar with it. Like get involved. And that's what I really like to see because people have gotten to this point that it's like, oh, that's not me. I can't look at it. I can't talk about it. I can't do anything. I'm like, well, ask questions. Like, and people are being chastised for asking questions, which drives me crazy. Because if you don't ask questions, you're never going to learn. Yeah. You know, just don't be rude in the question that you ask. I think that's <laughs> the simplest way to do it. But, um, you know, what about rivalries amongst nations? So if we look at the Asia one and, you know, there's a Korean story, there's a Japanese story. And, there, you know, we knew the, the international problems there. First Nations, I know, you know, uh, I had a friend who was Sioux, uh, didn't always get along with Cherokee people that he met them or when he met them. Uh, you know, Iran, Iraq don't get along with each other. Um, you know, uh, Sudan just split between North and South Sudan. Ethiopia and Eritrea became two separate countries when they were one because of what's going on in there. Um, is there some sort of sensitivity in telling a story for per continent because of those nationalistic ideologies that come into it? Uh, so sometimes, um, we do accidentally stumble on those. Um, like, um, I, with Oceana, there was a lot of, uh, discussion about the pe from the people that contributed on whether or not the Philippines is Asia oh. or Oceana. Um, and so sometimes it's kind of just, we make a judgment call and not everyone's happy with it, but, um, we just try to do our best on that. So. Yeah. Would that, would that also go for Indonesia? Cause I don't know where would Indonesia fall in that category? Cause it's a similar dispute as the Philippines. It would basically be a similar dispute, but I think it's the Philippines, um, because there are more, um, Filipino Americans in, um, that, uh, it, it just came up quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah, Cause I remember when I was in university, uh, I went to San Francisco state and we had that issue where, you know, there was a discussion, do they belong to the Pacific Islands or do they belong to Asia itself? And the majority of the Filipino students just said to hell with everybody. And then they created their own student union. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a, a great point to make with that. Um, because, you know, we want to be as, as respectful as we can to everybody in, in what we do, um, you know, without losing ourselves in, in doing mm -hmm. so. Uh, this, this Kickstarter is available. It's only running for 21 days from, from yep. what I saw. Yep. So. Uh, why such a short limited time for 21 days to, to try to hit uh, so the mark? So Iron Circus uh, Comics is the publisher for the book. And um, they were, I believe, the second comic Kickstarter ever on Kickstarter um, and have constantly been using Kickstarter. But now that they basically put out so many books each year that um, they started to do shorter Kickstarters because if they didn't, then they would have a Kickstarter always running. Um, so their normal Kickstarter length is actually two weeks um, and kind of to get um, this one as much attention as possible uh, since it's an anthology that we went with three weeks instead. Okay. Now, have you connected with universities and, and the public school system to try to get these into their libraries as well and getting the schools on board to order this? Because uh, so this that is was part of partnering with Iron Circus. So when the series started, um, like I told you, it was 2011, and I kick-started the European one 
in 2012. Um, and, uh, me and Kate did. And then, um, we kickstarted and kind of used that to prove while reaching out to people for the Africa one that like, we weren't going to run away with our money. Like, see, we did it once we can do it again. Um, and then, um, got the, uh, Africa volume kickstarted in 2014. And then the Asia volume kickstarted in 2016 and then the Oceania volume in 2018. Um, but while kickstarting the Oceania volume, um, we were almost out of Africa and Asia and kind of were like, we're going to need to do a stretch goal to reprint these or to try to find um, a publisher to keep them in print. Um, and both Kate and I have a lot of success selling them at conventions um, because kids can stumble on them, but kids don't really browse the internet looking for indie presses. Um, so we knew kind of to have the series grow, we needed to partner with a publisher that could get into bookstores and libraries. And at the time, Iron Circus was looking to expand their catalog specifically to have some kid-friendly books. Um, so Iron Circus kind of repackaged all the previous volumes and released them year by year, one at a time. Um, so, um, Iron Circus did Africa first, uh, because Kate and I had already reprinted the European one once. Um, so it was kind of, these ones are almost out of print, so we'll repackage them first. Um, and, um, so this will be the first one that only came out directly through Iron Circus, but those, because of Iron Circus's distribution, we are getting them into libraries and schools. And, um, uh, we've talked to, uh, we've made a couple of like educational guides to send out to teachers to use them. So. I love it. And your pledges are, are extremely reasonable. I mean, from, from the opening pledge of $8 uh, for the ebook all the way down to, you know, a, a $70 pledge that collects the books together as well. Um, you know, the, you're not like trying to break anyone's bank. You're, you're being extremely reasonable and fair with everyone. Yeah. 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 Um, so we have, we, you know, we have to make mention of that as well, because sometimes I'll see something on there and like, you know, $1,500 purchase and you get the book itself. And I'm like, that's a bit excessive, but okay. Um, you know, with, with this story for, uh, for this anthology series, especially based in North America, um, other than your, you know, Alina, we're going to talk to you for this one real quick. And then, and then, you know, Kel back me or follow up with you. What was your favorite story that you learned? Obviously, you know, everyone's partial to their own identity, but from one of the other uh, First Nations. I quite like um, Chalk Fee. Um, I have, was not super familiar with the Trickster Rabbit before, and it's just this really fun, cute tale. Um, yeah, I really like that one. And Kel, what about you? Uh, well, because I'm biased toward werewolves, I'm going to say the Rougarou story. Um, it's probably also my favorite, but I knew that one before. <laughs> <laughs> I like werewolves. Yeah. And what is the fan, is, fan, if, uh, what's the fascination with werewolves? Excuse me, I have Invisalign now, so like sometimes I slur my words. Uh, Alina, do you want to go first? or? Cause... I mean, they're just really cool. <laughs> They're, they're big wolves. They tear people's faces off. They're really great. I love them. Uh, so, 
my my short answer is the meme of Marge holding the potato saying, <laughs> I just think they're neat. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the, the longer answer I have is, um, so one of the other anthologies I independently ran is, uh, a book called Can I Pet Your Werewolf, which is all, um, werewolf stories that focus on friendship and family. Um, and so part of, what I like werewolves is less the like horror gore aspect, but also as far as like, they're a monster, quote unquote, who's more sympathetic and their humanity is treated as conditional by society. And so um I like that it's like, you get this sympathetic empathy of them feeling isolated from the general population, but then through meeting others, in sort of a pack situation, they then can have like a found family and like strength through community. Um, and so that kind of appeals to me. Um, and so I like werewolves, um, cause they're neat. Um, but I, I, I particularly like werewolf stories that focus on sort of that found family aspect. Um, and that's what all my other comics are about. Um, I think that was the first anthology that you and I worked together on. Like, you were the editor for that one, and I was a contributor. Yeah. And yeah. I did that werewolf story about sisters. Yes. That was fun. I dig uh, it. See, my my whole rationale behind the werewolf thing was what, what really appealed to me more than anything was finding the balance between humanity and savagery. And uh, the also, struggle that we have within. Also, my other uh, answer for why werewolves are cool is werewolves are the proletariat of the movie monsters. That's um, true. Yes. Vampires are the 1% and mm-hmm. werewolves are the proletariat and they should eat the rich. Literally. <laughs> that that just means Kel and I are going to have an underworld marathon watch party and dissect uh, all, what, six films at this point? Five films? But- <laughs> the underworld focuses too much on the vampires. It needs to focus on the werewolves eating the rich. So what does that make the mummies then? Um, Cause clearly the, they were the rich to be mummified to begin with, but like, well, they, so they're, they're like, like old like, money that have been pushed they're out. They're like old money royalty, like, um, decayed ideas like of, uh, the well, yeah, decayed ideas of the wealthy past. Um, whereas, uh, the, uh, vampires are capitalists. Um, so it's modern rich versus older version rich. Uh, the nouveau riche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, pe- the people that wore white after Labor Day. So the old, uh, old money knew that they weren't, uh, of the yeah. upper crust. Got it. I just found that out about why you're not allowed to wear, you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day. And that was the whole thing based between lot, old money and money. A lot of money. those like, um, rules are just to like get to identify people who weren't raised on them. Um, like what fork and stuff to use. Like mm-hmm. it only matters when you can afford to have five forks and. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, no, like I just found that out and I was like, that's absolutely ridiculous. But then I had a friend that grew, that went to university on the East Coast and he's like, no, that, that's still real today. Like the reason why they don't like XYZ type people is because they're all new money and like, you know, they didn't come from like 17 generations of old money, which I thought was hilarious, but yeah, because I can't afford a Bentley, but apparently that guy in the driveway has got six of them and he's still not as good as the other guy that's got six Bentleys in the driveway. 
but it seems like you you know the these books are educational the these books are are uh you know open to everybody i mean there you are you have transgender writers you you have other people part of the lgbtq aspect um the cha- the transgender writer and for forgive me on this on my ignorance because i've heard the phrase two spirit before um I'm just not a hundred percent familiar with it. Would that be yeah. this? Would the Elijah be considered part of that two spirit ideology, or um, it depends because um, I don't know. They uh, so two spirit is a sort of a, a pan uh, indigenous term that we uh, that uh, indigenous people came up with a while ago. Many of the nations had different gender ideas than the very binary. Uh, um, colonial ideas that came in of just male and female. So there was many tribes um, uh, among the Lakota. There was um, like four genders, I believe. Uh, and um, many nations had other, um, what we would now consider to be trans people, but who had specific roles within the community and were very much an accepted, um, like the, this is how this person is and we should uh, support them in that because they're a member of our community. So, uh, two-spirit is sort of a term that's, goes for all nations, um, but can either mean transgender or queer or gay or other gender identities. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Cause I didn't know. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. And see, you don't ask, you don't learn. Yeah. Remember that people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, these kind why? You know, you've called the Kickstarter cautionary fables and fairy tales North America. Why cautionary fables? Is it just because all folklore and kids stories yeah, were really that, just, that was kind of, um, we were struggling to come up with a catchy title right at the beginning. And so, um, the cautionary, fa- like being that direct and doing the cautionary fables, cause a lot of them do have sort of a lesson to them. And even though some of them are goofier or lighter, um, that, was just uh it worked i love it and before i let you go because we're running out of time where can we find you on social media uh the official title of the kickstarter so i can link everybody to it and then we we can talk to everybody about this you know uh, in depth uh, when, when they have more questions and want to learn about it uh so the kickstarter is um the woman in the woods and other north american stories um my I'm on Twitter as Kelhound, which is spelled like Hellhound, but with a K. Uh, and my website is kelmcdonald.com if you want to go read all my werewolf comics. Nice. And I'm on uh, Twitter as at Alina Pete, A-L-I-N-A-P-E-T-E. Uh, and you can read my other comic work at uh, weregeek.com, like werewolf, but for, you know, nerds. Uh, um, and just... Give me a minute. I'm getting Kate. Um, oh yes. Yeah. Uh, Kate Ashwin, uh, the, my co-organizer who couldn't be here cause she lives in England, um, is, uh, she's on Twitter at Kate draws comics. Um, and she does a comic called Wittershins that's at wittershinscomic.com. I love it. The Kickstarter is available now. Uh, Iron Circus Comics is, is a publisher on this. The Woman in the Woods. And other North American tales. Kickstarter is available 21 days. Uh, get out there and put your money where your mouth is and learn something. 